Hello, and welcome to Leading Inspired Learning, a Strive podcast. So welcome. My name is Bree. I'm the project associate at Strive, and I am your host for today's episode. We are so fortunate today to be joined by Danielle Pusateri, who is a doctoral candidate at Northeastern University and also a professor of early childhood education at Humber College. So we were actually reached out to by one of Danielle's colleagues, Wendy Crocker, and we're so happy that Wendy made this connection for us because this topic today is one that is a very pertinent issue and is at the front of our minds given the current discourse around gender and gender justice. We actually learned in our pre-recording meeting that Danielle has lots of connections to the London community. So even though she's not necessarily London-based, she's involved in our community in several different ways. We're so happy to have you here today to share some of your knowledge and research with us. Thank you so much for having me. And a big shout out to, as you just mentioned, Wendy Crocker, because she made this all happen. So I'm so grateful to be here. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's Um, it's It's a juicy topic. Yeah, it's, yeah. A wealth of information and exploration with this particular topic. So I'm Mm -hmm. excited to dive in. So I guess to get started, do you want to just talk about what it is that you do, what your position is at Humber, some of the work that you're engaged in at Northeastern? Just give me a rundown. Yeah, so I'm new to the Humber family as of this past September 2022. Uh, Prior to that, uh, Sheridan was my home, and that's where I did my diploma and degree and then went full circle um, in similar fashion to yourself with Fanshawe. Then I got to uh, join the the faculty and, and teach in both those programs. Um, And then I just accepted a full-time position recently within the early childhood education program. So that has been so much fun. Congratulations. Um, That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. And I, you know, one that just kind of crept up, I wasn't expecting it. I didn't think any, anything like that was going to happen until the doctorate was done. Um, But yes, I'm also a doctoral student at Northeastern University in Boston, and that has been quite a journey. I've decided to continue a research topic Mm -hmm. that I actually started in my BECL in the Bachelors of Early Childhood Leadership Program. And yeah, just something that I I continue to to be passionate about. Uh, It all stemmed from an incredible child that I had the privilege of learning with and from while I was a diploma student at placement. And then I started working at the lab school part time. So I got to see this child really grow and develop. And so hopefully I can see this child one day just to to thank them for what they've inspired with this work. Yeah, you had alluded to the importance of that particular connection and how that really informed your research direction. So I'd love to hear more about that in particular. Yeah, so okay, rewind to, I'm gonna say eight years ago or so. I'm a nervous diploma student on placement who, in time, Mm -hmm. I got to know some of the children in all the the rooms, despite uh, only being placed in in a junior preschool room. Um, But then when I started working there, I got to know the children a little bit better. But there was this one outstanding child. I'll refer to them as Sam. Sam, assigned male at birth. 
who was just kind of always drawn to the dramatic area, the dress up clothes, was quite happy. I used to call Sam my my nail consultant because Sam used to come up to me and say, oh, next time do pink or next time do rainbow. <laughs> um, and what, you know, just had an appreciation for a lot of the educators, beautiful hair and would say things like, I wish I had hair like you. Mm-hmm. So just, just had, you know, I'd say Sam had good taste, right? Yeah, and evidently so. Definitely. So I saw Sam first in the toddler room and then got to see Sam, you know, grow up through the junior preschool, senior preschool room. And then one day, which is the moment that really serves as as the critical incident here, I'm getting the children preparing to get ready for nap time. We're in the bathroom. And I don't know why all the best conversations always tend to happen in the bathroom, of Mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Um, But this wasn't a great conversation as much as it was just an honest conversation. And through tears, Sam broke down and said, I really wish I didn't have a penis at around three and a half years of age. And being fresh out of my diploma program, I just thought, okay, I don't even know what to say here. Um, At best, I could offer comfort through a consented hug, which they took me up on. There was just no words. But that was a moment that I couldn't erase from my brain. And it also was around the time I was doing my undergrad and we were getting prepared to engage in a capstone research project. And I thought, okay, that's, that's gotta be it. I have to investigate this. And Mm -hmm. so that's when I came across the work of Diane Aronsaft, who is a psychologist in California and Diane coined the term gender creative to express, you know, children who don't fit within that binary. And so that's when I I started investigating uh, and looking to understand educators' perceptions and experiences in supporting gender creative children in their classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what kicked it all off. Yeah, very full circle and really cool to see how a moment that happened while you were doing placement in your diploma has been a continuous thread for you throughout your education and research journey. Speaks to the importance of those placement experiences and how they can be so fundamental in our trajectory in terms of our career. They make such a huge difference. Obviously, the connection with the child was the key to all of this for you. What an impactful experience for you to go through. And, you know, not knowing how to respond in the moment, it really lends us to those learning journeys that we find ourselves on. Absolutely. And how many times are we where we met with things in the field that we just we don't know how to respond to certain things and we have to take time to think about it and, and reflect or go do some more learning. And, you know, there's a lot that that we have the privilege of learning throughout a two year diploma program, but it goes to show you it's it's not enough because mm-hmm. there's always going to be new things that arise and that importance in continued professional learning. Yeah, absolutely. And our language and understanding around all of these topics are changing all the time. New Mm -hmm. research is happening. New stories are being told and heard for the first time. The importance of engaging with topics, especially those that are related so strongly to the human experience, like gender, is essential to our work as early childhood educators. You alluded a little bit to what motivated you to engage in this work in your introduction, and I'd love to hear more about the work itself. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the things that you're engaging with in your doctoral work? 
So this is action research. And I love the fact that it is action research because the whole premise of it is you have to go and do something about it. We're not just writing a big dissertation that's going to collect, you know, dust on everybody's shelves one day. Mm -hmm. We are doing that too, but we are taking action steps, which is amazing. This research really looks at dismantling the heteronormativity, cisnormativity, basically how society wants to just put people in a box and wants to normalize being assigned female or male at birth and living up to those expectations of what it means to be female and male. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about how are we removing those expectations from the early learning environment so that we're not putting children in a box so that children can come to school and be their most authentic selves. And even educators, how, how do our early childhood educators and directors and pedagogical leaders have the opportunity and chance to arrive at a learning environment as their Mm -hmm. most authentic selves. So looking at kind of dismantling some of that. So within uh, the first cycle of this research, I interviewed professors of ECE, Mm -hmm. uh, early childhood educators themselves. And I also surveyed parents of gender, non-binary, transgender children Mm-hmm. to just kind of collect some data from them and see where things are at. And for professors and for ECEs, what was their level of education on this topic? And it, you know, was very consistent when they said, well, none. And mm-hmm. we, but we wish we had more. Um, and then talking about, okay, so what would you want to learn? What kind of content do you need? How would you like to learn this? thinking about what some of their awareness is on this topic, their biases that they hold. That really informed what happened in cycle two. Uh, So now working with four childcare centers in Ontario, and I specifically chose to stay within this province because Mm -hmm. we're all working under the same early learning framework, you know, same ministry of education. And and so we we do tend to speak a common language. I had the goal of having a director plus two RECEs at each center, just so that there could be that internal support as we went through this journey together, because it's hard to be that one person who takes in new learning and then wants to try to share that with an entire staff. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so getting somebody at at like more of a leadership position and then people who are on the floor working with these children and the families. So we did a pre-interview just to kind of see where they were at. I had them rate themselves on certain things around understanding. So asking them certain terms, like, Mm -hmm. can you share with me your understanding of gender or identity and gender expression? Looking at what kind of awareness they have of issues that might be happening in the early learning classroom. So just even as simple as language as, okay, boys and girls, time to come to the carpet for circle time or time to wash our hands for for lunch. One of our participants actually said that they had shared that line at one point. I think they were outside and getting ready to go inside and it said, okay, boys and girls, come line up. And a child was standing there kind of like, well... I'm not a boy or a girl, so mm. I don't know yeah, where I should I be standing. And so that was a critical incident for one of my participants. As a community, we went through professional learning conversations. So we met over the span of six weeks and we had some supportive texts that kind of guided the work that we did. I also provided centers with two children's books of their choosing. And these books would be things that challenge heteronormativity and really look at unboxing children. So My Princess Boy or Mm -hmm. Julian is a Mermaid. 
so that was really fascinating. We had a, a Padlet that served as a great kind of sandbox where we could just share resources, share celebrations and challenges because uh, goodness knows that's going to happen with any mm-hmm. any social justice work that we do. And it's great because it serves as an ongoing space. So just because yeah. those conversations are done, the conversation doesn't have to stop there. Exactly. Um, once we wrap that up, I did a follow-up interview with each of them individually, just to revisit some of those questions that I asked at the beginning, and then, you know, ask them now to share things like their understanding, their awareness, their application and practice. So mm-hmm. uh, questions around, you know, how would you feel to take a gender justice stand with a colleague who might not be supportive of a child wanting to wear a dress mm-hmm. or a gender justice stand with a family member who might be uncomfortable. And so the goal of the second cycle was to look at how can a series of learning conversations and content potentially enhance their self-efficacy mm-hmm. to challenge these things in the classroom. So when I got a chance to analyze the data and look at the before and after, it was incredible. Yeah, um, Everybody felt greater confidence, enhanced self-efficacy, but they all still noted that it's still going to be a journey, right? Yeah. It's still going to be a process of learning and unlearning. And a lot of that really had to happen internally first, because yeah. They had to work hard to ask themselves and dismantle their own truths of things that they held to be true or were taught as children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of great conversation came out from this where we said, if these children today, our youngest citizens of today, if they are exposed to an unboxing and just know how to celebrate everybody for who they are, they don't have to work as hard as we are having to work right now with things like pronouns and various identities and expressions. And so, because children are really kind and they are far more open uh, than many adults. So why not start with children? Yeah, you spoke to a lot of really important aspects of our role, that learning journey that goes on internally and that reflection, that deep reflective process that needs to happen about the things that we've inherited and our own assumptions and norms around gender. It can be a really scary process for a lot of people. But then when you have an instance like a child coming to you and expressing that they are perhaps gender creative, how do you approach that if you haven't even started your own journey with that? So a lot of things in that work. And I'm just so happy to hear that the folks that did participate felt like they were better equipped to start navigating some of those challenges and and supporting some of those conversations in our sector anyway. The learning never stops. It can't. It can't. It can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's still, it's still one of those things that does it, that it's not without its concerns, right? And even since the research started back in the diploma, a recurring theme or concern has been the parents, right? Mm -hmm. What do I do if the parents aren't okay with this? Or if this conflicts with religious and cultural values? Yeah. Many people have said, you know, as an educator, I value it, I support it, I see why it's important. And then there's that big but, 
right? That what if. And some participants shared that, you know, there would be threatening emails at times or mm-hmm. uh, saying things like, I'll, I'll call the news if to let them know that you are supporting or encouraging cross-dressing. That gets people afraid to really take on this work because of the threats and wanting to find that balance between being an inclusive environment and respecting where families are at. And also recognizing too that a lot of those those emails that come out that are that come across as threatening, it's because people are fearful, right? There yeah. is when when you don't know about something enough and it seems foreign, it's scary. Mm-hmm. And the response, you know, to to the work that we're trying to do is gonna come across a little bit in your face. Yeah. And yeah, so that's that's been a concern for sure. It's been interesting to see how a lot of folks said I would be more willing to take a gender justice stand with my colleagues, but mm-hmm. I'd be a little bit more cautious with the families. Yeah. That too speaks to another really important component of this work. Like everyone's on their own journey with this. And it's important to recognize that there is a lot of emotion tied into this because these are gender norms and our understanding of gender are deeply, deeply embedded in societal systems that we've been taught our entire lives. And unlearning that or starting to really examine that critically is no easy feat, especially if you've got other things going on in your lives, or like you said, cultural or religious values that have always taught you otherwise that are such an ingrained and important part Mm -hmm. of your identity. Unpacking all of that, or even trying to figure out where to start unpacking all of that can be a lot. One thing that really stood out to me about your approach that I really connected with was this idea of calling in Mm. versus calling out. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that specifically from your perspective. Yes. Well, okay. I have to give credit to Wendy because she brought that into our uh, social justice course that we did at, at Northeastern. And that was an article slash TED talk by Professor Loretta J. Ross um, that was incredibly impactful. And it just, it was something that I wanted to share with participants right from the get-go to say, okay, we're going to mess up here. We're going to mess up pronouns. We're going to, you know, maybe mess up terms because there's a lot of issues around conflation when it comes to Mm -hmm. identity, expression, sex, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has has to be a safe space. I also called them to these concentric circles within our guiding text. And in the very center was the comfort zone. And then Mm -hmm. the middle ring was the learning zone. And then the outermost ring was the danger zone. And I said, we can't get too comfortable because otherwise we're not going to work to learn and unlearn, but we certainly can't push past the learning zone into the danger zone where the amygdala fires up and it's like fight or flight now. Yeah. Yeah. We just build walls and people check out. Holding on to that calling in versus calling out kept us within the learning zone and gave people permission to feel safe, to feel brave, recognizing that if you make a mistake, we're just going to call you in from a place of love and we'll just talk about it instead of making you feel like dirt. 
And especially with social media these days, we have such a bad call out cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't give anybody the chance to grow and recover. And I did not want to have that happen with this work. Yeah, I too try and center love and belonging and acceptance in my approach. And even in times where it is hard because I get, you know, it's emotionally charged and our feelings do get hurt. And sometimes it can be very difficult to recenter yourself with that love-based mm-hmm. focus. I have learned in my own journey that doing the more call-out approach does lead to that shutdown, that unwillingness to engage. And that is the last thing we want. We want people to feel comfortable engaging in these conversations, regardless of where they are in their journey. Absolutely. And not not only was it important that we practice that as I was calling them my gender justice colleagues, Mm -hmm. um, but to also hold on to that when the conversations get a little bit murky with families, right? Because we've had some time to digest and marinate and just sit in this work. We're at a certain point in the journey and others might be way behind. And I honestly, when I first started this work, actually my first introduction to a trans person, I don't want to say I was uncomfortable, but perhaps I was uncomfortable. I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't know, right. I didn't know, you know, how do I address this person? Yeah. It just, it took some time to really sit with it. And now it's something I'm at a point where I don't really think twice about it. Like I just, people are people. And my only job, not only as in the role, the professional roles that I have, but just as a human being is if somebody tells me this is who I am, the only thing I have to do is just believe them and celebrate them for who they are, just as I would want them to do for me. I think that's such a powerful perspective to have and to hold and to share with others because we're all coming from different places and we all Mm -hmm. have different stories and exposure to different people and situations throughout our lives. We will not all be at the same place and that's okay. It's a part of the human experience. I too had a very similar journey with a lot of my unlearning. And I'm very grateful now to be connected to a lot of people who are gender diverse or gender queer Mm -hmm. or gender creative. And if it wasn't for them and their centering of love in their approach, I wouldn't be where I'm at today in my journey. Mm -hmm. So those relationships are really the key to this learning process Mm -hmm. and remembering that every person is their own person. And like you said, celebrating that, celebrating who they are. We're all different and we all bring different things. And we need to just keep that in mind as even as we're navigating what can be the really hard conversations. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think too, that these conversations are new and Mm -hmm. that, you know, the LGBTQ2 plus community is new and it's like, well, actually, no, no. always been here yeah, um, a long, just long time <laughs> a long long time ago there's also I think it oh, and I might mess this up I think it's um flip it to check it right let's just flip the scenario here and, and unpack this and mm-hmm. if it sounds if it sounds wrong or weird it probably is wrong or weird and when people say oh well well when did you know you were gay or when did you know you were and it's like would would you flip it that question to say well when did you know you were heterosexual? Yeah. And it's like, oh, and people think that's weird, right? And so just kind of working with people to understand 
the social construction of all of it, right? Mm -hmm. And just even starting with the conflation of terms and bringing participants early on to introduce them to my friend, the genderbred person, to show them that, okay, biological sex is what pops up on an ultrasound, right? Mm -hmm. And there's those issues, or well, I'm biased, and some people are not going to like me for saying this, but I am not a fan of gender reveal parties, unless you were to turn turn it around and call it a genital reveal party, because that's really (laughs) all you're sharing, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, gender is, if you look at the gender red person is what is between your ears, it's in your brain, it's how you feel, it's how you know yourself to be. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that does not align with your biological sex at birth. And your gender expression is just how you choose to present yourself to the world. And so the expression and the identity piece are spectrums and they are fluid and that one thing doesn't have to align with the other. I find that that really helps to put things in perspective because a lot of people will mix up gender and sex. That's a pretty common misconception and a huge barrier to starting to engage with that work. Like you said, breaking down some of those constructs is often the beginning point for those in the adult learning space starting this journey. So you had mentioned a couple of other terms that I'd love to break down with you, cis-normativity and heteronormativity. Just for those that may be a little bit earlier in their journey, um, could you elaborate a little bit further on what those mean? For sure. So, um, and I like to kind of emphasize breaking up the terms. Um, So heteronormativity, normalizing, or Mm -hmm. or quote unquote, normalizing heterosexuality as being a preferred mode of sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Within the concept of heteronormativity, it also assumes the gender binary, Mm -hmm. um, that there are only two distinct opposite genders, male and female, and that when a male and female come together, that is the way society privileges relationships. Mm -hmm. Anything outside of that is not the norm, quote unquote. Following within heteronormativity is cisnormativity. So just assuming that all people are cisgendered. So mm-hmm. I myself would identify as cisgender. So assign female at birth and I identify female at birth. And again, normalizing that and privileging that mm-hmm. and, and living up to, to those roles. So really wanting to put people in a box and, and categorizing who people are and therefore what they should do. And so just going back briefly to the gender reveal party, which I still think is poorly mm-hmm. termed, mm-hmm. Um, you know, how that when, when somebody says, oh, it's a boy or it's a girl, then people start to maintain this heteronormative lens and cisnormative lens and say, oh, she's going to be mommy's favorite shopper or he's going to be daddy's favorite little fisherman or whatever. And then, you know, okay, I got to go buy all blue or I got to buy all pink. And just even the language, how we talk to females you know, more delicately. Oh my gosh, honey, are you, oh, that must've hurt so bad. Whereas, you know, if a little boy gets hurt, it's like, it's okay, buddy, you're tough. You got this. Yeah. Right. Some dirt in it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Put those tears away. You're tough. Yeah. Um, That is that heteronormative, cisnormative lens. And so getting people, getting my, my gender justice colleagues in this work to think about how is that prevalent in the early learning environment? And Mm -hmm. whether that's through our language or that's how we set things up 
within our space. You know, we most childcare centers are lucky to have extra clothing for when, you know, we mm-hmm. get all messy in, in, in play or outside. And so are, do we have things labeled boys clothes, girls clothes, or is mm-hmm. it just shirts and pants and letting mm-hmm. children pick whatever fits and whatever they like. So those were all, all things that participants were like, Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. And even thinking, (laughs) even thinking too at orientation. So when families come to enroll, does it say child's name or does it ask for gender identity or sex at birth? Are we making room to inquire what are the family's pronouns, right? And mm-hmm. and being more open to that as opposed to just saying, you know, mom, dad, most most centers say, you know, parent or parent, guardian, yeah. which yeah. is pretty um, inclusive and, and open. But yeah, there's there's a lot just even within our forms and our within our space that sometimes we don't think about. Do we have gendered bathrooms? Maybe not mm-hmm. so much for the children, but for yeah. for the staff and families that come in, or is mm-hmm. it all neutral? It really permeates a lot of different areas of our lives that unless you start thinking a little bit more critically about it, you may not even realize that that is happening. What I really loved about your research was the refocusing on how that in particular impacts gender creative children. So if we think that it's a lot to think about, how does it make a child feel that's Mm. maybe going through that experience and is gender creative? You included in your research Ryland's story, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that in particular and how that helps support the work that you're doing. Yeah, so Ryland's story, Ryland Whittington, and um, Ryland's mom wrote a book about their journey. Ryland, I think as early as three So Mm -hmm. kind of in line with Sam was finally able to say something to the extent of, well, just yelled, I'm a boy, Mm -hmm. really young. And then was just started to become kind of increasingly depressed and withdrawn and said at one point, when the family dies, I'll cut my hair so I can, because I'm a boy. Um, And the family decided to follow Ryland's lead and sorry there's my I knew my dog was gonna make an entrance into this podcast um the family just they were scared obviously and parenting doesn't come with a handbook and they sought you know the help of professionals and and came to the conclusion that Ryland is transgender Mm -hmm. and as soon as they arrived at that spot they changed pronouns they you know said to Ryland let's redo this room we'll get rid of all this pink um Mm -hmm. and make it a space that you're happy with that reflects you know your interests and who you are and that was so much in line with with Sam's story and I had a chance I think a year, a year or two after doing or during my undergrad capstone Mm -hmm. to catch up with mom and to see, okay, so where are things at? Because this child had the safety net of being within a lab school whereby we loved, loved them so much Mm -hmm. and, and got to, you know, see this change happen. And as a, as a team work to do research, you know, come across Ryland's story, pull, draw, draw on different supports 
because obviously we didn't have that from our pre-service training. Mm -hmm. And it was tough because we're, well, with any, any child who leaves our nest to go mm -hmm. to kindergarten, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, you're, yeah. I'm scared. The ratio is just that much, you know, more, more bigger, more <laughs> and bigger. And it's the big school yeah. and they don't know you as well. And I've changed mm -hmm. your diapers and I've, yeah. you know, seen the tears and I, I kind of, I know you. So for Sam, that was little, that was extra fearful. Mm -hmm. And mom said that it was the first time that Sam asked to go buy boy clothes and not because that's what they wanted to wear, but early on in their start of kindergarten, they did not feel comfortable mm -hmm. and they just felt that this would be, you know, an easy way to just get through the day with less hassles. And mom said that as soon as Sam would come home, they would take off their boy clothes and go put on a dress because that's what they felt comfortable wearing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point, you know, we, we don't realize what it's like to be a gender creative child or to be a trans or queer person living in a heteronormative world. Mm -hmm. And just the constant discomfort you know, there's times where I've, I've worn a sweater that I'm like, oh my gosh, that tag is just itching me or yeah. I hate this material. I can't <laughs> wait to get home. And, and so just by wearing boy clothes for Sam, there's got to be this feeling that I could only imagine of, I feel gross. I'm not my authentic self. I therefore can't make authentic relationships. The Sam I knew in preschool mm -hmm. was such an outgoing child, so funny, so loving. It also, I would imagine, takes a toll on, on your ability to learn and to take in new information of if course. you just feel not yourself. Yeah. So that's that's scary. And I I would be so curious to know where things are at today. And I hope things have gotten better. Yeah. Um, but that was the last update that I had. It really reminds me of the immense privilege that like we can take off that sweater that's maybe a little bit uncomfortable and, and not working for us. Gender creative children can't remove parts of themselves. With that mindset in mind, that should be how we're framing our relationships with them. They can't change who they are to try and fit into a box that wasn't created for them. How can we make them feel comfortable and feel safe and feel loved and feel that sense of belonging when they're living in a world that really was not designed to fit them in it? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an emotional journey. And mm -hmm. yesterday I shared some of the findings with my gender justice colleagues. And yeah, it, it definitely strikes a chord but with, you know, with any social justice work, it's, you're going to feel these things and, mm. and it can, it can kind of take your breath away at, at moments. And it can be tough too, you know, for myself, that was that critical incident spun all this, this work being cisgendered female myself. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have to live with the everyday stresses that queer people would have to live with. And so it was also, it was just a push to push through this work yeah. um, because it's not something I'm faced with every day and I don't bring that lived experience. Another thing that was really important within this work was to bring in the authentic voice. Yeah. And so I have a participant who is non-binary who shared a lot with mm -hmm. other participants to the point where they said, okay, you know what? 
I'm doing it for people like them. This work has to continue. It has to continue for people like Sam uh, watching Ryland's story, right? Bringing in Ryland's authentic voice. And then I had an incredible trans teen who is in Austin, Texas, and her mom to share their journey and their experience. And as we know, especially within the States, depending on what state you're in, uh, you're accepted or you're not. It's not good right now. It's not good. And Texas is becoming increasingly scary. We have to fight for these children. It can be easy for us in a Canadian context to kind of divorce ourselves from some of the violence that we see occurring in the States. But I think it is really important to remember that that does happen here too. It may not be as overt, maybe. We may not hear about it as often, but it, it is a thing that happens here. And, and just because it's there, there's legal protection doesn't mean that can change, right? Or, or exactly. it doesn't mean it's going to be here forever it can change at any any point in time and we have to continue to fight for everybody's rights so yeah a lot of people think well just because it's legal and we were you know supportive as a country doesn't mean that it's perfect there's still a lot of i mean the heteronormativity is very prevalent pervasive right it's embedded in everything as you said, just because it's legal doesn't mean that violence doesn't still occur. It just maybe looks a little bit different or feels a little bit different. I'm queer, but I'm very fortunate to be connected and have loved ones that are genderqueer and and non-binary and trans. And the amount of fear right now in the community is is horrifying. Um, sorry, I'm trying not to get choked up. Um it's very scary for us as early childhood educators. One of the most powerful things that we have in our tool belt is that ability to create connection. How can we use that to help children and families feel safe and loved and supported when we know that there are times in their lives when they don't? I really do think a lot of this incredible work starts with us as Mm -hmm. educators we have to get it embedded within our pre-service programs so that we can equip our educators who mm-hmm. truly are superheroes uh, in so many ways, just so that they can help to create and foster openness with children so that this doesn't have to continue exactly. so that everybody can just be and it doesn't have to be talked about. Hopefully research like this doesn't have to be done in the future because it's yeah. just understood and celebrated. But this work's going to continue until we get to that point. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just amazing that you're doing this work and doing it from an ECE specific lens. You are engaged in this work for us so that early childhood educators and early years professionals can feel better supported. That self-efficacy piece in approaching these conversations and really helping children and families feel supported. Yeah. And also recognizing that gender and sexuality is, you know, two two pieces of a larger pie. And so if we can build self-efficacy here, how can that snowball into other areas? Absolutely. Um, so I'm excited for what this can continue to be and take different shapes and forms. Social justice work is all very interconnected. As you said, it's only one piece of the pie, but the things that we learn by engaging in this work can be easily translated to other areas of our work that we're, that we're involved in. 100%. Amazing. Would you like to play a game? 
Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with your favorite children's book. So many. I know. There's just so many. I struggled with Um, this question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was, I had to take a moment to think because one that I love is The Kissing Hand. Mm, beautiful I just, one. I just think that's that's a message for for everybody filled with a lot of love and not only between parent and child but even educator and child and mm-hmm. even at a post-secondary level with with our students you know to know that hey I'm always here with you and we got this and you can you can do hard things so yeah I love this book for so many reasons. And also, um, then another thing Wendy introduced me to the boy, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. that one page where it said, "Can you see your next step?" And just take that, mm-hmm. right? Just, just baby steps. So yeah, and I think there's just something so endearing too about having animals be a part of the storytelling process. It makes it feel, I don't know, magical in a sense. That's one of the many many wonderful things about children's literature but mm-hmm. yeah kissing hand is is such a fantastic one i think we should write a children's book together i agree because there's so many gender expansive gender creative books that are all about assigned male at birth who express mm-hmm. more female and so I mean, there's a big gap in the reverse and so i would like Absolutely. to just be a little bit more inclusive and in, within that area so maybe we should collaborate some more well maybe uh strive <laughs> community look out for future projects yes. a children's book may be coming down <laughs> your way <laughs> love it yeah love it favorite age group to work with preschool mm. sorry did i take too, was that too fast i should know like let me think that you didn't even need a second. <laughs> you were you were ready. Well, and I guess age group, I mean, any age group, right? Because yeah. at a post-secondary level, we have two levels of learners that we love and support and are thinking about at all times. All so time. mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's nice. I love working with our adult learners just because, you know, they're so passionate and driven, but knowing that they're going to have an impact on the children with whom they serve. So mm-hmm. I guess the answer to that is every age group. I would agree. <laughs> I am a toddler educator at heart. I always will be. But I think to my experience now working with adult learners has really had a profound impact on me as an educator, mm-hmm. but also just yeah, that understanding that they are going to be part of the change makers of the future. Yeah. Agreed. The answer is all. We've decided. All. <laughs> Beautiful. Favorite professional learning that you've attended? I haven't stopped professional learning. Same. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? If you're in this field, you shouldn't. So just continue. In January of this year, I had the privilege of attending a workshop with Raven St. Clair, Dr. Raven St. Clair Mm -hmm. um, on racism, accountability, and wellness. And she is such an incredible storyteller. And she talked to us a lot about Indigenous ways of knowing Mm -hmm. and uh, shared with us some of the Cree laws. And I found that really humbling. And she said that, you know, Cree laws were given to Cree people, but they're for everyone. Mm. Um, So 
That was, that was amazing. And she also talked to about if we're going to do social justice work and work to dismantle and repair and work to do better, mm-hmm. we have to stop talking about things as being, you know, our racism in our unconscious mind, because our unconscious mind, we don't even know it's there. So how can we bring things to the surface? So looking at things and talking about things as being within our subconscious mind, because then that is something that we can begin to work hard to unlearn, dismantle and and reflect on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, relates very strongly to what we just talked about. And get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Favorite ice cream flavor? Pistachio. Oh, <laughs> good choice. Love, Love pistachio. pistachio. <laughs> so good. Mm. Uh, now and I'm, I'm ready hungry. for some because it's, I mean, the weather's getting nicer. So yeah, ice cream, ice cream season is upon us. It actually is starting to look like spring. We were marveling at mm-hmm. some of the buds that are coming up on the trees already. I can't believe I'm ready. Um, me too. Goodbye, yeah. Snow. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Favorite podcast. You can say leading inspired learning. It is amazing. Of course. <laughs> well, it's the first one I've been on. And so, yeah, that's obviously my number one. <laughs> What's Over number two? Number two. Okay. So I feel like I should say my number two is well said which Mm -hmm. is, I think it's newer, maybe since COVID kicked off, it's done through Indigo. So Heather Reisman, I believe her last name is Mm -hmm. the one who, you know, famously known for Heather's Picks. Heather's Picks. Yeah. So she interviews, you know, some of the authors of her Heather's Picks. And it's really awesome 20, 25 minute snippets of just incredible information from a variety of authors. I feel like I've learned a lot about you know, memory and the brain and dementia and Mm. the importance of sleep. That was really incredible to trip on over the winter break. And then kind of a guilty pleasure is Armchair Anonymous, Mm. Armchair Expert Mm -hmm. with Dax Shepard and Monica Padman. And I have to give all that credit to my former associate dean because she got me hooked. And uh, that's my little podcast while I commute to work and I Mm. end up just laughing the whole time. So which we need. Exactly. All the time. Exactly. Amazing. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much. This was awesome. This was wonderful. And thank you for taking the time to be here and sharing your knowledge and expertise and perspective and for engaging with me about what is a very crucial topic. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to write a children's book with you. I know. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank, Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram at Leading Inspired Learning Pod or on our website at striveswo.ca slash podcast. I would love to have you tell a friend or colleague about this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please join us next time.